Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. So welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm here still with Chris Smith. This is part two. Uh, we have gone through the beginnings of a fairly comprehensive ERV and HRV discussion. So if you haven't listened to part one, definitely uh, advise you to go back and listen to part one. If you want to be stubborn and proceed with this, it, it could possibly stand alone. <laughs> You'll let us know. But we had talked through ERVs and HRVs entering the U.S. market. What's the difference between ERVs and HRVs? We talked about the cores, the enthalpy and heat exchange cores, and the sensible and latent recovery effectiveness. I'm going to start this one out by saying you can combine the sensible and latent recovery effectivenesses to make a new metric, which is the total recovery effectiveness, which is published for some reason more than the LRE. Why is why is LRE not listed very often? What the heck? I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay. I can't say. We won't go down that road anymore because the next really important topic is, is this systems theory, right? Is recognizing that this sensible and latent recovery effectiveness that comes out of the core is not really the core, it's the system. So it depends on the flow rates, the indoor and outdoor conditions, and it depends on the fans. It depends on the distribution system itself. It depends on the ducting. How do we move the air from the outdoors to the ERV, into the ERV core, and how do we move the air from the ERV core into the ERV, through the fan, and into the building? Mm-hmm a lot there. Let's let's break it down. Let's talk about first, where would you locate the ERV in a, in a home? Yeah. Ideally, if you can put as much of this system inside the conditioned space. That sounds familiar. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just, that's just for starters. Again, because the way, you know, the way that our industry is, the way that the, the building industry is, and the, the reality that People don't think very often about ventilation as a separate thing from heating and cooling. Yeah. There's usually very little space anywhere to put an mm-hmm. ERV. And so without the space, the common assumption is you can throw it in the attic or garage or the basement or whatever. That's a compromise. There's always going to be a compromise there because, again, if you go back to what's the value, a lot of the value of this uh, HRV or ERV is the sensible recovery that you're accomplishing. And if you stick it in a hot attic or you stick it in a cold basement or you stick it in a whatever garage and you run your ductwork through there, you're, you're going to start seeing heat gain or heat loss. So anyway, yeah, inside, so inside conditioned space, this yeah. box and then you just yeah. undermine its effectiveness. Yeah. Um, Same with an air conditioner in a hot attic. Yeah, and, and so again, that, that kind of goes to, to, to taking a uh, holistic integrated view of building design, right? Mm-hmm. So we start to conceive of buildings in a way that there's there's space allowed for these things to happen. It doesn't have to be a lot of space, yeah. um, but if it's conceived of properly, it can be done aesthetically, you know, well. It can be done functionally well, and um, and it can be easy enough for an installer, and not an ugly thing for people to have to live with. Yeah, yeah. It, it, this gets back to our previous discussion. I mean, buildings. The, the hidden drivers of, of home design right now are eyeballs, 
egos in economics. Mm-hmm. And uh, people don't want to give up the square footage for anything because it's, it's an economic issue. But when it comes right down to it, when you buy a car, there's room for the engine. When you live in a human body, there's room for the lungs. Mm-hmm. So we're really bumping up against some sort of, you know, in terms of the laws of physics, some sort of fiction when we say, yeah, yeah, these these other things, we're going to call them ventilation systems. Right. You know, you have a hole in your return plenum and a right. damper, we're going to call that ventilation. Right. That's that's not ventilation. <laughs> that's like, I don't know, it's 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 disingenuous. Yeah. It's, it's the worst thing we could possibly do and still make it pass code. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you want to locate the ERB in the conditioned space. Um, and I'm thinking close to an outside wall, right? So the, the cold and the hot air don't have to travel through your condition space. Yeah, right. So if, if you if you can locate it near the envelope, the edge of the envelope, then you, you are once once the outdoor, once the air goes through the, the heat exchanger core, mm-hmm. it's um, at room temperature ish. On the ins, on the indoor side. Your supplier is at room temperature. And your return air of course or your extract air is at room temperature because that's where you took it from. Right. So all, that whole side of the system is isn't experiencing a lot of heat loss or heat gain. It's the ducts leading to the exterior where you're taking in your outdoor air and where you're exhausting your stale air. Those two ducts are very different. The air inside those ducts for much of the year is going to be fairly different from the indoor air. And so that's where you're going to experience heat loss or heat gain in the system. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, if the system is inside conditioned space, then yes, getting the, getting the ERV ideally somewhere at the edge of the building envelope allows you to minimize that heat gain or heat loss. Okay. And then the big the big questions is going to be what do you do with the supply air mm-hmm. and how do you collect the extract air? Yeah. I mean, we're going to take them one at a time. Let's okay. start with supply air. Where supply do you want air. to put the supply air and yeah. how do you get it there? So the supply air is for the, um, the people. It's for the people in the house. So you want to direct it. You want to direct the supply air primarily into my lungs. To, 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 to <laughs> yeah, think about where people are going to be and think about where they're going to be the longest. Because bedrooms. Yeah. So bedrooms. So ideally, you're looking to, to direct your supply air to bedrooms because most 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 people sleep. They sleep, and that's mostly where they're spending the bulk of their time at home when they're breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. When they're breathing. Oh wait, they're always breathing. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we always prioritize bedrooms as, as how do you, so, so the question is, how do you get that there most reliably? Mm-hmm. Kind of thinking about a distribution system. It's a duct system, of course, because we're moving air. Mm-hmm. So if you have a central ERV and you're trying to get supply air delivered to a handful of bedrooms or a few bedrooms or whatever, you need a distribution system. If, this, if the house has a, a heating and cooling system, it's very common that the supply air is might show my bias if I use the word dumped into the um, the, the heating and cooling air distribution system, and that's not terrible. Um, well, you got to be very careful about how you do it. Yeah, yeah. some distribution systems it wouldn't be appropriate sure. for. Yeah, yeah, but but it, it. But then you're dumping supply air into every room: the bathrooms, the that's right. living room, dining room, yep. kitchen. Yeah, it's not a very targeted approach. Mm-hmm. So I, but I am breathing in all those rooms too. Just that's not true. all the time. Yep. Not as much as a mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, after we get after we talk about the return or extract there, we can kind of tie that together and and but um, <clears throat> I, 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 
prefer a, a more targeted approach um, of delivering the supplier directly to the bedrooms, which really indicates a, a dedicated distribution system uh, because it's, it's functional operating principles are going to be different than the conditioned air, the, the heating and cooling system. So, um, so a dedicated distribution system is ideal. Um, it, at the install, it's going to be probably a little more cost. Um, could, could you just ballpark that? I mean, is it like you pay X for the ERV box mm-hmm. itself or HRV box and then 2X total when you add the distribution? Or is it is 2X just for the distribution? Yeah. I mean, so in terms of ballparking numbers, I'm done. I know everything. I, it's, well, I'm mostly familiar with, with the way we do it at our company. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, yes, the equipment package, and we, we, we do market an entire package, including the ERV unit and then all the distribution components. And, uh, and, and it does end up typically being that the distribution components are about the same cost as the unit. Mm-hmm. That probably doesn't hold for a lot of the industry. For a lot of the industry, your distribution costs would probably end up being a bit higher. If you do dedicated distribution systems. Yeah, that's my guess. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it's what, is that, what does that distribution system look like? What kind of labor does it require to put together and make it airtight? So, um, so there's a lot of variables in there, but yeah. So, okay. but, but you're but you're probably looking at doubling your cost by you know deciding on using a dedicated distribution system. Mm-hmm. Can you measure it? You might. There's probably a way to measure it, but I would venture to say you might be doubling your effectiveness for the value, or the actual inherent value of the system and 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 what you're trying to accomplish with mm-hmm. it. So, um, and interestingly, with, with with very careful design, in a very similar way to we do hot water delivery system mm-hmm. designs. If the architect really works with the floor plan, we have minimal hot water runs. Yeah, you could do a very similar thing with locating an ERV and having minimal yeah. distribution. That's runs. right. Um, it's like multi-dimensional Sudoku for architects. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yep, it's another layer, like, and it can be a challenge, but it can be fun too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so supply air to bedrooms. Not to the living room. So yeah, let's. That's why don't we do this? Let's let's jump ahead and talk about return air first, okay. and then we'll then we can kind of come back to that because or, or, yeah, okay, extract uh, air, return. extract air, yeah, or mm-hmm. commonly called return air. Ideally, you know, you mentioned ASHRAE earlier and the difference between intermittent values and continuous values. Actually, for supply air, there is no difference. There is there is one in, in residential. There's there's one standard. You have to meet that standard for your supply air. If you do it as an average over the course of four hours, that's fine. But one way or the other, you have to get there. ASHRAE also has requirements which are adopted by the codes for extract air, right. commonly called exhaust air in the codes. Mm-hmm. And that's for bathrooms and kitchens. In a residential setting, that's usually where those requirements exist. So that's where we're generating pollutants. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, or, or generating them wherever we take ourselves. That's right. Yeah. But, but they're concentrated there. Yeah. Concentrated. Yeah. ASHRAE allows, ASHRAE gives certain rates, that's where it breaks it down. It says if you do intermittent uh, exhaust ventilation, let's say from a bathroom, then in you know in most jurisdictions we're talking about uh, intermittent is a minimum of 50 CFM in a bathroom. But ASHRAE says, and the codes have adopted, that if you do continuous, you can drop that rate to 20. Some jurisdictions are saying 25, it's great, but basically you see you're, you're, you're at least having Mm-hmm. Your your uh, ventilation rate if you go to continuous. 
Which has the amount of energy, amount of air. The size of the machine that you exactly. particularly need to accomplish the same SRE. Right. Um, so, anyway, so you've, you've got these uh, exhaust rates, and, and ASHRAE and the codes are calling for them specifically out of bathrooms and kitchens. So, if you're going to do a balanced ventilation system, if you're going to, I know we're probably at some point going to talk we didn't about, talk about what that balance, but balanced is basically, you know, you're not driving infiltration or exfiltration through the building envelope. Uh, if you exhaust the same amount of air as you supply, you essentially have a, a pressure neutral system. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we'll talk about what we yeah, can do with that. Yeah, right. yeah that's great. Yep. Yeah, so with a balanced ventilation system and ASHRAE specifying what you need to exhaust out of bathrooms and kitchens, in the in the North American residential market, that pretty much drives what your supply mm -hmm. is going to be. So you, 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 know, you have these different things you have to meet, but if you're doing a balanced ventilation system, in my experience, almost every residential setting, if you simply meet the exhaust ventilation requirement, mm -hmm your supply ventilation requirement is going to be more than adequate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's... Yeah, I've, I can confirm that math yeah, works out. Yeah. Yeah. It's typically bathrooms and kitchens that drive the ventilation rate more than occupants. Mm -hmm. So we, we tend to like to live in houses that have ample number of bathrooms. So our ventilation systems tend to, tend to be probably more than ASHRAE intends for the occupants um, in terms of the supplier. Right. But... Uh, but that's the way we like to live. So mm -hmm. we do like lots of bathrooms. Yep. So you ha you bring the supplier into the bedrooms. You extract from kitchens and baths. And yeah. So what that leaves is that you have transfer spaces in between those, and you know. So it's it makes sense that you don't necessarily need to supply outdoor air or supply air to every single living space. Mm -hmm. um, most and again, it, it requires a consideration of the floor plan of the project you're working in but most homes you know have have in, in our markets tend to have pretty open living spaces and so the bedrooms are you know kind of off on their own uh, maybe at the end of a hallway or something bathrooms might be along that hallway but bathrooms tend to be kind of dispersed around the house in a lot of our floor plans as well and right. the kitchen is usually on the other end somewhere of a living open living spaces mm -hmm. so so a lot of these uh, you know you're you're typical great room or a dining room in a common open floor plan it's probably going to be transfer space and you mm -hmm. probably don't need to directly supply there but I look at the floor plan when I'm designing a system if, if it if it seems like it's tucked away and if I've got more supply air to, to even off the exhaust requirements then I might go ahead and pop some in mm -hmm. the great room mm -hmm. as well but. so yeah like, like for on the floor Example on the floor plan, if all the bedrooms are tucked away down one long hallway yep. that just feeds kind of tangentially into the central core, mm -hmm. you might worry that some other aspect of the section of the central core wouldn't get that transfer air. Yeah, but something. it's but it, it, it's it's been studied and it doesn't um, mix. Yeah, if you're if you're if you're pulling air via extract locations in bathrooms and kitchens past an open room. In other words, there's not a shut door there to go into the great room or the family room. 
if that's open to the hallway on one end and a kitchen on the other and you're pulling supplier across there and exhausting it through a kitchen, um, the air quality within that great room is going to be affected very sufficiently. Interesting. Um, so what if your bedroom doors are shut and there's no transfer duct, I mean, clearly that's a problem. If, if, if in most uh, common construction, there's enough... Uh, door undercut? The, the door undercut is usually sufficient. Interesting. For, for the amount of air that we're talking about. And, and this is, again, we're this deep Continuous. into the conversation and we haven't really addressed volumes. Mm-hmm. The typical volume that people think about when their air handler turns on and they feel that blast of, they hear and feel yeah. that rush of air. That's not the amount of air that we're talking about when we talk about ventilation. That's like a thousand CFM. Yeah, right? yeah. Cubic feet per minute. Yeah. The CFM is an interesting thing. We use it, we just bandy it about CFM. Yeah. That's cubic foot of air per minute. Yeah. Right? So if it's right. 50 CFM, that's 50 cubic feet every minute. Right. Yeah, so we say a thousand CFM as though it's like that's a holy moly. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a lot of air. It's like sixty pounds of air a minute. Something like. And I'm not, I'm not as expert on heating and cooling, so I don't know, like you know, what CFM might say. If you took a typical maybe twenty five hundred square foot house or three hundred square foot home, how much air might be moving through there to cool it? Twenty five hundred square foot home, yeah. yeah. It, it, and it's it's a thousand CFM would be about right, and that's yeah. seventy three pounds a minute. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And that same home. In order to change the air quality through uh, a balanced mechanical ventilation system, yeah, is you're talking about 100 CFM, right? Uh-huh. Continuous, yeah. So it's not, and that's distributed throughout the whole house. So it's really, it's you don't you don't typically see or feel the ventilation air in a well-designed, well-installed system. Got it. And so you're saying that that small amount of air can squeeze under a door. Under a door and a cut is no problem. So you supply to the bedrooms, even if the bedroom doors are closed, unless it's somebody's really gone out of their way to seal off that door and make a yeah. shag, yeah, right, something it. like that. Then you then you want to do a jump duct. But you want to do a jump duct anyway. I mean, that's required by code. Okay. Point is, is that the air traveling is going to be pulled down that hallway. It's going to be pressurized in the bedrooms by the ventilation system, mm-hmm. depressurized by the extract in the kitchens and baths, and it's going to pull that air along that that space. And it will change the quality of any open spaces it encounters along the way. What about in bathrooms? I know that um, you know that the pollutant generation can be episodic. <laughs> Is there a way to match up the ERV flow to that? Yeah. So most most ERVs, you know, have a have a range of of capacity, and so. You know, the, the, the one thing you always want to be looking for is in, in the system is that you have some control over the speeds. You want to be able to control the speeds to balance it, but you also want to be able to shift into different modes. Um, so yeah, a boost mode is a good thing. We don't typically run ERVs at, at full tilt. Um, usually, they're, they're you know we design to run it somewhere around 50 to 60% of the fan capacity. And is that where the sweet spot is on SRE, by the way? Yeah. Well, it's, if, you, if, if the whole thing's been designed together and, and you're targeting it that way, yes. That's about... I mean, the sweet spot on SRE is if you just have a trickle of air going through, then you get great SRE. But yeah, you design for a, a reasonable SRE at, at your sort of medium operating speed. Then, then you allow for these episodic moments where you can go into boost mode mm-hmm. and um, maybe it's for 30 minutes or so. And, um, and you, so you have a boost switch typically in a bathroom where if you activate that boost switch, the system goes into boost mode and for a time cycle. 
and then you know it, it goes back into normal speed. Got it. During that boost cycle, you will see lower SRE um, because you're pushing more air through the core at a faster rate. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't have the time to do the heat exchange right. that it would. But you'll still get good heat exchange, and um, you know it's just not not the same. All right. So maybe now an even more tricky question: um, kitchen pollutants, mm. right? And whether or not you should use a kitchen exhaust fan. Yeah. Range hood. Right. Yeah. Where um, Where are you at with that? Where do you think the the industry is evolving? In my opinion. Yeah, it's it's uh, it is evolving. Um, partly because it's becoming clear that that the cooktop is is the source of some really nasty indoor air quality issues. Um, and there's a couple ways of addressing that. One is is you know to go away from burning fuel at the cooktop um, to reduce some of those contaminants. Yeah, but even even the food itself that we're cooking right. is is chemistry. Know, yeah, it's <laughs> chemistry and and particulates and, and all that that's that's coming off of that cooktop. So I think there's a growing awareness that that uh, you know ventilation hoods are really important in kitchens. Again, if you go back to building science as if you, if you're thinking about it as a science experiment geared around uh, energy consumption, then then vent, kitchen vent hoods become, you know, problematic, and it, it's that's a problem, not a not a solution. Right. And and a good one. I mean, increasingly, we're seeing that that you know the typical you know uh, thing in my you know apartment that I had when I went to college was maybe 100 cfm, you know, or something like that. Um, we're finding now that what we really want is substantially more than that, and so you might you know probably minimally. 400 CFM, but they're obviously cooktops are up running at 900, 1200 CFM. That's a lot of air. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's exhaust air, but that doesn't mean there's no supply air. It's just you're going to suck supply air in from somewhere. Where do you get that much air? A makeup air system, of yeah, course. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Which is another penetration. You just added two more penetrations to your building envelope and your. Um, and you're and you're concerned again about the the energy that that's involved in that. So I think that I think that these uh, vent hoods are important. I think that the, the makeup air solution, a makeup air damper that gets activated when the vent hood goes on, is, is probably uh, a good solution. Um, this its saving grace is that it's intermittent in its use. Right. Um, so from an energy standpoint, yeah, it's a compromise. From a, from an envelope standpoint, yeah, it's a compromise. But it can be done well, mm -hmm. um, so that you know those those are those compromises are mitigated. Yeah. But I think that's important. Where an ERV intersects with that, do we want to do we want to extract air from a kitchen with our ERV system? And I think we do. I just think we want to be careful to not assume that that is it's it, it can't do the vent hoods job. Mm -hmm. um, but even when someone isn't cooking, certainly can't do the job as effectively as it. Yeah, because it doesn't yeah. have a capture hood. It doesn't. Right. There's no sump. On the yep. The capture sump. rate is not good now. Um, and the contaminants that, that often come off of a cooktop, you don't want in your ERV system because they'll quickly reduce your your uh, your SRE and LRE. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll clog it. it. Yeah, mm -hmm. they'll coat it and clog that up and, and start to make the thing both unhygienic and ineffective. So you don't want to use it as a vent hood, but 
even when somebody's not actively cooking and running their vent hood, the kitchen is still a source of, of a lot of contaminants, if you want to call it that, that, that you want to get rid of. There are dishwashers running, so you've got moisture. a point, you've got a moisture point. There are food odors, there are, there's a concentration of food for microbes. So there's a lot going on in kitchens. You have Most people tend to store cleaning chemicals in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that kind of so stuff. So extract the air from the kitchen, but not right over the Not right over the hood. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well said. Uh, and this, this gets into an overall maturation of, I believe, of our industry, which is um, looking at Miguel, the incoming Committee on the Environment Chair here in Austin. Our industry has been gaga about energy, and not just energy, but operational energy, this small subset of energy, or not small, but roughly half. And now we're getting to health and well-being, and we're getting to embodied energy. We're really starting to, okay, we've got our basics covered. Let's let's mature and deepen our yeah. knowledge. Yeah, um, and it's fun to you know when you work with a uh, you work with an uh, ERB company, a ventilation company that's that's trying to stay on the forefront. You you get to experience the vanguard of all that. It's so it's you know you see I mean you're working with the early adopters in some sense. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of early adopters and. Which, on the one hand, is exciting. On the other hand, it's very frustrating because you're looking at the rest of the market going, "Yeah, you know, we're come on, yeah, wake up." <laughs> so, yeah, this is our like, for the next decade. I really think that building science needs to um, needs to mesh with social science and psychological mm-hmm. science yeah. and behavioral science. Oh yeah. Um, otherwise, it's it's just marginalizing yep. itself. And, and there's some there's some uh, there's some players that are trying to enter the the, the para industry uh, professionals that are trying to enter in and, and intersect with the industry at that level, um, from a marketing standpoint, but but from a psychological standpoint within the market to say, here are the issues, and if you keep making energy arguments, you're not going to make much progress. Right. Um, if you keep the operational making, energy arguments. Yeah, yeah. If and, and if you keep making science, even even if you keep making scientific arguments. Um, so on the health and wellness front, there's different ways to talk about things where we can start to move the dial. And that's fascinating to me. I, I wish I had more time to, yeah, me to too. learn about that and be part of it. But, uh, but I, think we, I think in our, all our practices, we are a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. We're shipping away. Yeah. That's a dedicated distribution system mm-hmm. for supply air and extract air. And we will not go into all the different options. I mean, it could be sure. site-built metal, it could be sure. custom components, sure. depending on the manufacturer. But there's also this, um, you can use the existing ductwork if it has appropriate geometry, hopefully. Um, you could simplify the installation by using, and save some costs by using the uh, existing ductwork. And I know some of the basics, usually you connect the ERV to the return line, is that right? It's, it's what I remember. Tell me, you're making a face. It's it's well, it's done commonly that way. Um, so, yeah, if, if if you're going to use the existing system, then I then it seems to me that the best way to do that, if that's if that's what you're limiting yourself to, is is to is to take your extract air from the return air mm-hmm. plenum, but then very commonly in a simply conceived. Installation. It's it's easiest and, and cheapest to just dump the supplier right back into the same plenum a few feet down. Mm-hmm. That just yeah, there has always, to be yeah five feet of separation or something. Yeah, but trickle. but it, but it, I, I think a better practice is to is to um, do it on the other side of the blower and put the supplier inject the inject the supplier into the, the supplier plenum of the air handler. Yeah. And now that might be harder because it's 
Well, certainly if it's a retrofit. Um, yeah, there's usually not a lot of space uh, for that, and yeah, and, and, and even in an existing new construction, if you if you didn't plan for an ERV from the beginning, right? Um, yeah, I guess yeah, those plenums just aren't they're they're designed to be minimized usually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the another discussion topic on that is the ERVs. They are a, a fraction, you know, ten percent of the air handler flow. But similar to a dehumidifier, right? You have another fan. If you're leveraging your existing ductwork, you need to account for That's the right. additional airflow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the things to me that drive the decision about how to do a distribution usually it's cost and convenience. <laughs> I Those that's egos and yeah, economics. You got it. <laughs> um, but I think uh, I think you know the things that we really need to be thinking about are. Controls and operation. Mm -hmm. So how how do these systems interact? What are the what, what what's the control principle for the conditioning system versus what's the control principle for the ventilation system? Then you've got the issue of of the capacity of the distribution system. So your air flows and your duct sizes, and you just need to think about that. And that will often be in tandem with the blower operation. How, how are you going to control the blower? So those two go together. And then you've got, um, you know, the, the, the distribution scheme itself. Where are you targeting supplier versus where are you targeting extractor? Mm -hmm. And so, with size ducts. And yeah, yeah. So those things. are the things that kind of factor together to make that decision. And um, and I just think they should be, they should, they, you got to think through those as well as what's the easy, where's the easiest place to run this duct? If you get through that, having thought through all those things, then, yeah, there's, there's still probably two or three decent options on the table. Mm -hmm. And there are myriad layers of compromises yep. and decision factors. And, in, and then in, in, in terms of execution, you know, it's, it's really important that you make the system airtight. Yeah, which gets into my next topic, which yeah. is startup and commissioning. Yeah. And not just make it airtight, but test it that it be airtight. Okay, yeah, so when we move on to that, the, the reality is that we've just spent an episode and a half or so talking about what is an ERV, why might it be interesting yeah. to you, how might you design it, but where the rubber meets the road is in none of that. The rubber meets the road is like, the system you actually installed, is it working effectively? Yeah. So what are prudent steps to test that and yep. make sure it's happening? Um, well, I'll back up just a step and say, you know, that the design and installation should be done with, with the thought in mind that this is going to be commissioned. Um, ah, interesting. You know, so when you design and install that way, then you're, you're, you're kind of working towards your goals. If, if commissioning is completely an afterthought, you're going to run into all kinds of issues, both in terms of uh, how do I get at, how do I get at this? That airflow is wrong. That There's airflow. no way to change it. Yeah, right, right. How do you change it? Um, how do I get at it to measure it, measure it accurately? Um, and, and, the installer needs to understand this too, because again, that will that will drive some. Uh, hopefully, that's part of the work ethic is to say, look, we're trying to. The reason we're installing ducts is because we want a certain amount of air to go to a certain place. Let's make it airtight so that we can guarantee that this air gets delivered there. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you've got just the the you know the pressure dynamics of the system. Um, so having an installer who understands. The choices that they make while they're right. rooting ducts or making bends or whatever they do, that every one of those has some impact. Um, 
and they all, I mean, what they culminate on is this, we talked about earlier, whether the air flows are balanced or imbalanced, yeah. meaning that the extract air is less or more than the supply air. And so what, assuming that's all done and then you get to commissioning, you know, you, you, you want a system that gives you control over both fans because you want, whether you balance, and maybe we'll talk about slightly imbalanced systems and the potential benefit of those, Yeah. but whether you balance or slightly imbalance, either way, you want to control that and predict it. And so you want to be able to have a system that enables you to make those adjustments. So usually that's going to require um, both some adjustment of the fan speeds as well as some adjustment uh, within the distribution system. So whether that's dampers or uh, adjustable diffusers or whatever you decide to use. But you want to be able to, to ramp up um, the entire supply side or exhaust side of the system independently to make adjustments for balance. And then depending, particularly on, on, um, on certifying projects, um, it becomes more important that the flows room to room are exactly what they were designed mm -hmm. for or within a certain margin. Mm -hmm. So commissioning is that process of going through and adjusting all those. And then finally in commissioning, besides just adjusting flows, um, you know, you're doing commissioning is, is a tricky thing because it depends on who's doing the commissioning, what their role is on the project, uh, compared to who the installer is or the builder or the mechanical designer. Um, whether the commissioning agent sees themselves as a quality assurance uh, professional. They certainly are in terms of mm -hmm. the function of the system, but they may, they may begrudgingly end up being a quality control component towards the installation. If they're not on the same team as the installer, then they kind of feel like... I've, I've known a lot of commissioning agents who show up to commission a job that is nearly uncommissionable because of the way it was installed. And um, and so that you know there could be some. This gets back to psychology. Yeah, there could be some giving and receiving feedback, inter <laughs> interpersonal dynamics there. Yeah, but um, but yeah. So the commissioning is partly QA, I guess. Um, it's but it's also partly making is that final step in making those adjustments. And then there's an ideally there's an educational process. The commissioning agent is someone who's pretty knowledgeable about the goals of the system because they're the ones making the fine-tuning adjustments at the end and, and confirming. So they should know about this and, and how to control the system. So a lot of times you've got the commissioning agent doing a, you know, a, an orientation with the homeowner or, or the building manager or whoever is in charge of that system's function. Yeah. Um, so those are all key, key functions. Mm -hmm. And so you are the commissioning agent is um, a psychology ninja mm. with a lot of technical depth and this person is measuring flow rates and pressures in, in, inside to out too, right? So let's, let's talk about that now. Why might you want to control building pressurization relative to outside? Yeah. Um, there, there's a couple different reasons. Um, and I'll start with, with you know, a uh, hot, humid climate, um, typically, you know, for much of the year, you've conditioned the indoor air to be cool and dry. Mm -hmm. And, um, and if you're, and so, so you're, if you look at your building envelope, uh, the layers of the building envelope that are closest to that cool, dry interior 
or obviously probably much of the time close to dew point, maybe below dew point yeah. compared to the outdoor air. So if you have a system that is depressurizing the house, and when we say depressurizing, I don't mean that you stand on the block and you see the walls sucking in. Mm-hmm. You don't see that. You know, it's difficult to sense this most of the time. Right. Um, occasionally a house... Very subtle. Yeah, occasionally a house becomes depressurized to the point that you will notice it at the front door when you go to close the front door. <laughs> it's lame. There's that, yeah, if you, don't, if you don't give it that extra push, it just doesn't quite latch. And you're like, what? Um, so sometimes you'll feel that in a house, but other than that, you usually don't feel these pressure differences. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're not significant um, in terms of what they do with the air. So a depressurized house... In a, in a hot, humid climate, will pull humid air through the building assembly, through the building envelope, until it hits cooler surfaces, and it, you may cause condensation. Mm-hmm. And mold. And yeah, which is in places usually where you can't access and don't see. Mm-hmm. But it will nonetheless affect your health. So you don't want to depressurize in a hot, humid climate. If anything, you want to slightly pressurize so that you're driving dry air through the building assembly towards the outside mm-hmm. rather than the opposite. So you can slam your door. And that too. No. Yeah. Okay, express, and, and express your anger. Does the converse hold in cold, dry climates or cold, dry um, winters? A little bit. And, and the other thing that we run into a lot is, is concerns about radon. So there's a, there's a tension there because if you depressurize, then the thought is you could be inviting radon through the basement. We have a lot of basements up north. You've got a hole in the ground, which is where radon's coming from. Well, if you depressurize the house, you're, you're looking at potentially creating a pathway for the radon. to. So we tend to be very close to balanced. I see. Because um, if, if you positively pressurize, now you're driving the humid indoor yeah. air in the winter. It's humid indoors. Yeah, that's right. The that's right. Point yeah, so we, so we, we tend to either keep it pretty close to balanced or cheat it towards an uh, uh, depressurized. And you do this by controlling the fan speeds. Primarily that, the overall system or balance. Or dampers, I guess. Potentially dampers, depends on the unit you're using, but mm-hmm. most good ERBs are gonna have adjustable fans. Mm-hmm. So um, so that you can tweak them. And, and uh, as we talked about in the last session, an ECM motor usually allows you, you, you know, your controls are, you're, you're tweaking these in 1% increments. So what about getting the extract and supplier fans to adjust in real time? Right. Yeah, so there are systems that will be self-balancing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're, they're using uh, sensors to detect uh, mostly resistance. So you, you, know, you detect differences in pressure within the system, and the source of that difference in pressure is usually going to be either some change over time that's gradual, like a filter getting dirty, and so there's just less flow getting through that filter, um, in which case, whichever fan is in that airstream is going to start to have to work harder. And so a sensor will detect that uh, drop in pressure and I- incrementally increase the speed of the fan over time. So there's that kind of thing. And then there's more intermittent or, or short-term issues like um, um, maybe if your exhaust and, uh, and intake grills on the exterior of the building are on different sides of the house and you have a windy day, uh, then, then maybe one side of the system will see more or less pressure than the other. So the, you know, a, a self-adjusting system, a self-balancing system can sense for that and make adjustments for that. 
usually they're, they're programmed not to react to somebody opening the front door and walking out and going, you know, it's, it's very short term. Mm-hmm. But Could an air handler operation? Huh? Could they respond to an air handler? Yeah, maybe. Coming yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's something that's more long term. Usually, you know, and it's all in the algorithms that the manufacturer uh, adopts. But um, if they say don't respond to anything, you know, shorter than 30 seconds, mm-hmm. it won't. But if, yeah, an air handler goes on for five minutes and changes the pressure on the house somehow. Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and this is totally neither here nor there, but these algorithms, I mean, they're they're everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they're in what's going to improve me for a mortgage and all these sure. things. That's right. I'm an engineer. We work in an engineering company, and I don't get access to algorithms. That's right. I have to wonder what they are. That's right. I would love that part of our culture to change. I would like to be able to edit my own algorithm for heating and cooling, ventilation, yeah. dehumidity. Yeah. In my experience, so and, and as our, our products have evolved and, and um, you know, our newest generation of product that we're doing now has a lot of algorithms at work. So there's a, adjustments happening all the time. And, wow. and you don't know, you could be sitting there next to the machine, and if you're listening to it, um, you may wonder, why did it just change speed? Um, it's, it's, it's watching a number of things and, and making decisions based on that. And so to understand, A, to keep track of all the factors it's taking into consideration, you could probably do that. And if it's your profession and you're the mechanical designer, you could certainly wrap your head around those. But then you have to learn about how it responds to each one. And you then have to learn about which one it prioritizes in what order. And then in practice, what does that actually look like? It gets complicated. The the, the more more sophisticated the units are. But yeah, there's this... (laughs) There's this trust aspect. Uh, there's that trust, and, but verify. Yeah, right? I and there's know that's what right. Too. Yeah, yeah, and there's that too. And and so you know, there's a philosophy within the the uh, product development process where you you weigh the difference between okay, for the average user, what's most beneficial to them? A ventilation system that that knows more than they do and can adjust to things that they don't see or think about. Maybe that's a good one. But then the the other thing to think about is the design professional who's specifying this stuff. What level of confidence do they have in its operation? Mm-hmm. Some of that, or vice versa. I mean, there's levels of design professionals. Yeah, sure. Um, so, in some sense, having the ERV do that thinking for yeah. them is a good thing. Yeah. In certain cases, right. and probably in many cases. Yeah. So we t- we're talking about balancing and, yeah. and you know um, having self-balancing systems or automatically balancing systems. If you want to pressurize or depressurize on purpose of a slight imbalance in your system, which I do, yep. slight positive pressure. Yep. Then what you want is a system. Okay, great. It's self-balancing, but it's self-balancing to a set point that I assigned. So you you tell it I want it to be this percent imbalanced. Um, towards the supply side and I want you to maintain that and now the self-balancing system maintains that rather than absolute balance. So it's not balancing based on a pressure signal? Oh, it will. It will. It balances, but it's keeping track of the fact that you want whatever a, a 5% difference in the, that pressure or whatever it is. But there's no uh, external temperature, excuse me, external pressure sensor or is there? Do you have a sensor on the our units have, have pressure oh, yeah. sensors inside the fans, and so okay, one in each fan, so it's detecting the pressure differences in those two airstreams and adjusting to them. So it does have a measurement upstream of the outside air fan, the intake fan. 
we might be getting in the weeds of touch, but I know you're interested. Yeah, we, we can just leave this for now. So it, it, and I but, but, it's, it but well, what it's doing, though, is, is it's, it's because the unit, our unit that I'm talking about, is sensing air temperature, uh, sensible and, and humidity mm -hmm. in all four corners. It's keeping track of that, and it's sensing pressure within both airstreams, mm -hmm. and it's calculating the temperature differences to project, okay, this is the actual pressure difference out there in the house. So it knows the temperature. I get it, yeah. And so it knows the so mass of the it, air yep, and exactly. the volume and it's, flow, doing, right? and it's doing a mass flow calculation uh -huh. and adjusting the fans for that. That's awesome. Yeah. spotty RVs on my list, but let's just, I'll just dispatch with that one, Chris. I think I know, basically uh, it's a compromise, if that's all you can pull off, do it, but it's it, you know, spotty RV is probably not eing very well in terms of the enthalpy exchange, and it's probably not veeing very well in terms of getting ventilation air where you want to, and pulling extract air from where you want to pull it. One of the things that we didn't talk about was that we are filtering this incoming that's air, right. yeah. and you know, making homes healthy includes making them allergen free. And here, you know, we call this the live music capital of Texas. It's also the allergen capital of mm -hmm. Texas, or the pollen capital. Um, spring and fall, actually, much of the year, you can find someone that's really suffering with pollen here. And uh, so, most of the manufacturers are going to offer intake filters. I'm sure all of them. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, 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 you don't see very many now. You see a wide range in, in the quality of those filters, hmm. but um, and the MERV rating on them. Yeah, right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Both both the um, the MERV rating, and then the the execution of you know how that filter actually sits in the unit and how effective it is and what kind of yeah, bypass, bypass there is. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, but good manufacturers they'll have MERV thirteen and up. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's really great. So I think, you know, the, my, sort of my final thought, and I'll, I'm interested to hear yours, is um, how important ventilation is, how important uh, a good enclosure is for ventilation. But really, it, it just gets back to this, almost this theme, I feel like I'm stuck on it, which is that the technologies exist today to do much, much better indoor environments, to deliver them to us, to ourselves. But we don't use them. We right. don't leverage them because the industry is kind of stuck. It's kind of locked down. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. So any final thoughts on um, HRVs, ERVs, market dynamics, anything, Chris? Yeah, well, a couple things. I think, you know, that we, earlier in our conversation, we talked about how a lot of this started in, in North America, and then the Europeans kind of lapped us. Yeah. They, 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 uh, they stole our, our, our technology and lapped us with it. Mm-hmm. And, um. And I think as much as we can, we, we, can't, we can't mimic Europe. We have different climates, largely. And so it doesn't make sense for us to just say, well, we'll just do it exactly like the Europeans. We need to adapt. But they have done a great job of advancing ventilation technology and principles. And their view of the ventilation system as a, as a hygiene system is something we need to adopt. Yeah. We don't, you know, the, our, our industry doesn't look at ventilation and think, when, when you use the word hygienic in a discussion about ventilation, you just, the eyes roll or the, you know, the, the, 
the glazed overlooks come in. So I think that that's important. I think we need to elevate that way. We can learn a lot from the Europeans that way. Um, we're going to have to make our own advancements that fit our climates. But I think I think our building culture can, can develop a lot. Yeah. You know, related to that, most people probably don't, but I happen to travel with a Telair 7000 right here, CO2 detector, and it does go to 400 when I take it outside. And I turn it on in a lot of commercial spaces. I rarely measure effective ventilation in terms of CO2. I, I mean, I'm, I'm measuring... Uh, 1,000 ppm, typically. You go into an airplane, 3,000 yeah. ppm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like here in North America, at least, based on my very limited sample space, ventilation is not done effectively. Yeah. In a residential context, you tell people about ventilating dehumidifiers and ERVs, and they think you're some sort of shrill, uh, utopian, yeah. <laughs> right. crazy man or right. something. Yeah. I think commercial, it's just begrudgingly, uh, whatever. IAQ is a, is a there's, there's growing awareness around IAQ mm-hmm. in the consumer market. The technology and the apps, the monitoring apps and, and other things like that are becoming more accessible. And it's it's like a lot of things, you know, I liken it to the way people think about their health care. And even that is shifting in our country. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, yeah, people are thinking that. about, you know, not, not treating symptoms, but looking at mm-hmm. the actual deeper whole kind of system. And and I think that it's a similar path that we need to take with this. Is it's just growing to, to have a more kind of holistic view of how we get impacted by our indoor environment. That's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Your expertise and your your heart, your human caring. I feel it. You're welcome. Thanks for thanks for uh, inviting me. And thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you soon.